gospel said myself and think how hard it is to keep writing about love in these times of tension and strife, which may at any moment become for us all a time of terror, I think to myself, what else is the world interested in? What else do we all want except to love and be loved? That was Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day? Wow. Long time ago. Things don't change, huh? <laughs> I know, they really don't. Um, except the rotating cast of this fantastic band changes all the time, <laughs> like that transition. Um, and Peter Carmen, so good to have you back. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's just uh, it's fantastic. Peter was Peter was one of the original members of the House of Mercy band going way back to the mid nineties. He wrote the yeah. or he wrote the original House of Mercy band's biggest international uh, hit. The old brown country shoes, junkie country girl. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, old brown shoes. Old brown shoes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that was good too. That, that's what she was wearing. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's good to have you here. It's good to have you here and, and to hear from you. It's good to have all you here. It's all good to have all the streaming people um, at home. And uh, yeah, we got a big week coming up uh, in the church. Uh, yeah, we do. What's Friday? <laughs> this is called Holy Week. Um, and uh, while it's pretty holy most all week, we really get ramped up for Friday which is Station of the Cross. We haven't had an in-person Station of the Cross in three years, so please uh, come and join us. Uh, each year we ask artists to interpret the 14th Station of the Cross, and we hang that art and use it as uh, part of our Station of the Cross Good Friday service. So 7 o'clock, please come, and there will be a reception afterwards, just in case uh, you don't want to, like, get in a big group of people crammed up and look at all the artwork tightly together, we're going to have some time where people will be able to take their time and if they want to just look at the artwork, uh, yeah, you get what I'm saying. And then, of course, on Sunday, the Feast of the Revolution. Yes. Sometimes called Easter. Yep. The Brass Messengers will be here. There will so be good. baptisms and confirmations. Yep. We'll proclaim the resurrection and drink some champagne. So hope you can come out next Sunday. Friday and Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that uh, we? Did we ever say anything about Peter Carmen? How great he is! I, I okay, think no, you said that. We can say it again, okay. though. All right. Uh, <laughs>
This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, in the midst of the ebb and flow of the chaos that continues in this world and in our lives, help us, at least for this moment, to let go of the need to respond, the urge to assert some kind of control, so that we may sit 
and find the counter-narrative in our breathing, de-escalating with every breath until we have found a center where clarity and mercy are more fully a possibility. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you all. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you all. Some of you I haven't seen in a long time. This song I'm about to sing, I wrote about 10 years ago for Angie Talley, and it appeared in a different version on her record. It's called A Little Heartache. There's a little heartache Every time we meet At a party on the bus Or just walking down the street There's a little heartache In this heart of mine There's a little heartache When I knock upon your door A needle here there well that's what friends are for there's a little heartache in this heart of mine there's a little heartache in every move you make but everything you've got to give well I don't want to take there's a little heartache in this heart of mine. If only you could have, if only I would have, we could have been so. Thanks to the, uh, the Von Trapp, I mean the, the Brandt family for joining me. That was lovely. Thank you. Two-fifths of the Von Trapps. Um, so when Eric asked me to come and sing tonight, I checked the calendar and realized it was Palm Sunday. And then I kept looking at the calendar and I realized that uh, Friday is uh, not only Good Friday, but it's also Tax Day. And that's the first time that's happened in my lifetime. 
April 15th being Good Friday and Tax Day, a chance to practice rendering unto Caesar and all that. And so I got to thinking about taxes, and I think about taxes quite a lot, really, because uh, for the last several years, taxes have been paying my paycheck. So thank you for putting food on my family's table by paying your taxes. It has a direct connection. And I was thinking about um, the tax man. If you listen to a lot of old country music, you hear about the tax man. And he's kind of a villainous archetype in country music, which is too bad. I think the tax man gets a bad rap, quite honestly, because the tax man doesn't actually get to spend that money. He just collects it. He's a street-level bureaucrat. And so as I was thinking about all that and thinking about coming to play here, I decided to write a new song, and this song is called Tax Man. It's a love song to all the street-level bureaucrats out there. Tax man up in a tree Tax man, don't you tax me Tax man up in a tree Tax man, come home with me Zacchaeus was a little man A little man was he He couldn't see above that crowd So he climbed up in a sycamore tree Jesus found him and called him down He said, take me home with you Eating with sinners and drinking their wine Till he climbed up in a sycamore too Tax man up in a tree Tax man, don't you tax me Tax man up in a tree Tax man, come home with me Well, certainties are few, my friend, and we can't know the day or hour. But schools and bridges, parks and roads don't spring from a higher power. Tax man up in a tree. Tax man, don't you tax me. Tax man up in a tree. Tax man, come home with me. everybody thank you won't you please join me now in the prayers of community i'll end each prayer with 
God, in your mercy, and I invite you to respond, hear our prayer. Just as you were a victim of the violence of the state, we pray for all those who suffer violence to those, by those in power, in the government, in business, those who run the world. We ask that you would bring a new understanding to the people in power, a new sense of accountability for their actions, and that you would turn their hearts and that you would grant them mercy and love so that they might live likewise. God in your mercy. God of mercy, we pray for those in need of physical, spiritual, or emotional healing. We pray for those who've been long sick, who are now on the mend, help them to regain their strength. We pray for all those individuals and families who are mourning the death of a loved one. We pray for those who are dying. We pray for those who are beginning to understand what it means to live without someone they have recently lost. We pray for those who are in prison and those who are prisoners of addiction, for those living with real loneliness, for those of us who live with mental illness, especially in a time of continued isolation. Gather all of these in your arms, hold them in your healing love, sustain them with your unending peace. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we have not loved you with all that we are. We have acted in ways that have damaged your creation. We have acted in ways that have hurt those people in our lives and those passing through our lives with the things that we have done and the things that we have neglected to do. We ask for your forgiveness and we are confident that you judge us with your grace. God in your mercy. God of mercy, meet us now in this extended time of silence. Amen.
Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues of love. Grace is name, I'm fixed upon it, name of God's redeeming from the 19th chapter of Luke. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage in Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it, it as he had told them. And they were untying the colt, and its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the ground. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds and powers that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The word of the Lord. Did you hear that? Okay. (laughs) So then there's more clips of other anchors making fun of Obama. Putin, big, strong, muscular, no shirt on a horse, says a woman. And Obama on a little bicycle, a leisure bike, not like a real racing bike with a dumb hat on, says a guy. This is just the kind of stuff you want your kids to see, right? So they know how embarrassed they should be if they wear a helmet. How weak and stupid they'll seem. 
to ride a little bike when you could be riding something big and loud that burns fossil fuels. Then there's another clip, a more recent one. A Fox guy asked Bill O'Reilly, want to talk about Ukraine for a second? And O'Reilly says, it all began with a picture of Obama on a bicycle with a helmet. And now we're paying the price for that. The picture says a thousand words, he says. What thousand words? If only we had a muscular man on a big horse to lead us into a savage war, outlaw dissent, and censor the media. I guess I kept thinking about these images because central to this text, the Palm Sunday text, is an image of Jesus, our leader, supposedly, a grown man riding a donkey. A donkey, a shaggy, ignoble, small animal. I mean, have you seen a grown adult riding a donkey? It's not an image that reads power, strength, muscles, authority. Especially if it's juxtaposed with an image of a Roman leader on a chariot, say, surrounded by four war horses. And I think that that's the juxtaposition that we're meant to imagine here on Palm Sunday, entering Holy Week. What kind of leader do we have? If we're following Jesus, what path will he be taking us down? Some Bibles label this story the triumphal entry, which if I thought the committees who decided these things had a sense of humor, I would believe was meant to be a joke. Definitely irony. A triumphal entry, a triumph, was a very particular sort of event in the Roman Empire, reserved for victorious commanders and chiefs who had achieved very specific things in battle, like you had to have killed at least 5,000 people. You had to have an impressive list of spoils of war and conquered significant amounts of land. And if you met these criteria, you could enter the city triumphantly. Often as many as 150,000 spectators lined up along the path, the victor stood on a chariot harnessed by four war horses, not shirtless actually, but wearing something fancy like gold trimmed, an ivy scepter topped with an eagle in his hand, his face was painted red like the statue of Jupiter. The procession often was more than two miles long, and it began with models and images of conquered lands and cities that were transported on these huge carts, and sometimes there was elephants or giraffes, any sort of exotic animals that might be from the conquered places. Then there was the spoils of war paraded, armor, weapons, wealth, and then there were prisoners of war in chains. Headed by the kings of conquered tribes, the triumphal entry included the public execution of selected prisoners in front of the crowd by strangulation. Music played, people shouted slogans in honor of the winner, raised their fists, and flowers were thrown along the procession. Julius Caesar, after a victorious battle, carried the famous inscription, I came, I saw, I conquered. So, 
There's that Roman way of parading the king into the capital. And then there's Jesus riding on a donkey. With a multitude of disciples, Luke says, which, which might be like 70 people, not like 150,000. Joyfully praising Jesus for all the deeds of power that they had seen him display, which were like laying hands on those sick with various diseases, healing a man with a withered hand and a woman who had been bleeding for many years, sowing little seeds, feeding a few thousand people, forgiving, loving. Jesus enters the gates of the city sitting on a donkey, having killed exactly zero people, has no spoils of war, no weapons, no prisoners, having conquered no one, in fact, on his way to be killed. There is a lot of revelation in this little story, I think, about who God is, what the creative creator, sustainer, and redeemer is like. Not very scary. If you can use the word, word powerful, then a power of a very different sort. Seed-like, nonviolent. But I'm not sure after all this time if this revelation has really sunk in. Not for Sean Hannity or Fox News or the US of A, though I think they all claim to espouse Christian values. Probably none of us gets it entirely, though I believe we do see glimpses. It's just so easy to slip into reverence for the conventionally powerful, those who have conquered successfully, the winners, the strong, the famous and the fortunate, and so very easy to pay a lot less attention or be devoted to those with, who are sick with various diseases, the broken, the vulnerable, and the unfortunate. It almost seems like it's part of our DNA or evolution to slide into this, like survival of the fittest, like it's some evolutionary necessity that directs us down that path. But that's not actually true. That's old science. And it's not even what Darwin was really getting at by the fittest. He didn't mean the strongest, but rather the most fitting, the most appropriate. And it seems really freaking obvious as we near climate catastrophe, nuclear war, that striving for power, conquest, the accumulation of wealth, a devotion to competition isn't working out very well for the life of humanity or the planet, but rather jeopardizes survival. Scientists can tell you that if the universe were not more cooperative than it is competitive, it would fall apart. Atoms cooperate by combining to make molecules. The components in the cell work together to keep it living. The key principle for survival is interdependence. Not, I came, I saw, I conquered. 
not brute strength, but something a little more vulnerable than that. Because more needy. Because we need water and dirt and fats and proteins and sugar and each other. We need love. And sometimes we need a helmet to protect our brains from breaking. The more scientists look at the way the world operates, at the science of ecology, the more they perceive the key principle of interdependence, not only between creatures, but between life as a whole and the fabric of our planet. If the universe were not more cooperative than it is competitive, it would fall apart. And yet, if you watch or listen to the news, if, if you look at the leaders of our nations, corporations, the church sometimes, it does not seem like this is a truth that is widely or easily embraced. To be perceived as vulnerable, needy, as interdependent, it's not generally very popular, like it looks weak. And the truth is, we're fairly weak. Without our weapons, compared to many other species, our, our hides are nothing like buffaloes. We can fall and we can break. And Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden and Mr. Musk, they can too. Without bodyguards and the best medical care and all the people who cooperate to keep them safe, it's just them and their skin that can puncture very easily, and their mortality, and their limitation. It just seems so crazy that all this energy is spent hiding what is so obviously true. Jesus, the incarnate God, takes a different approach, wildly different. It's not ashamed to ride a donkey. Or maybe it's like he's happy to sit in the place of shame without shame, as James Allison would say. I was looking at art related to this Palm Sunday passage, and there was this one 19th century painting that I guess was pretty expected, sort of solemn. There were subtle colors, straight lines, balance, and it depicted a dignified, almost rigid-seeming event. Not a lot of movement, polite, solemn. And then there was this more ancient manuscript illumination from an Armenian Bible where the colors were really bright and vivid and it was all wavy, curvy lines. And there was this one young bystander who was spreading his garment on the street like the one he took off his body, leaving himself naked. It was kind of humorous. And it's like this artist really took note of the stipulation Jesus makes that the donkey should be one that has never been ridden. Because in this illumination, it's like a bucking bronco of a donkey. All four of its feet have left the ground. It almost looks like an animal that you might see on a carousel or something. It's bright blue. And Jesus is making an almost look ma, no hands sort of gesture. And I can't quite tell, but it almost looks like he's smiling. And it seems like that could be what it's like 
to sit in the place of shame without shame. Like, it's not something that's necessarily devoid of the possibility of pleasure. It could be playful or relaxing. Yes, Jesus is going to his death. But what could be that like? What could that be like if you weren't afraid? Or at least mostly unafraid? Or at least unafraid in moments? Jesus doesn't seem to be that into his dignity. He spends his time with sick and broken people who have failed to be great, rides on a donkey for his triumphal entry, dies a most humiliating death for love, to show mercy, to reveal something about humans tend to be, like they scapegoat, betray, even people we love, they're often fearful and violent, attracted to the power of the world at the expense of a collective flourishing, and to reveal, to reveal something about who God is. God sees who humans are, loves them to the core despite their tendencies, says, I'm not going to hurt you, even if you hurt me. Don't be afraid. It seems like this would provide some clues for his followers, like light the way forward, like illuminate the path or something. And yet, Patriarch Kirill, one of the most powerful authorities in the Russian Orthodox Church, has said Mr. Putin's leadership is a religious miracle. As bombs have rained down on Ukrainian cities, he has asserted that it is God's truth he has called the invasion of Ukraine a holy struggle against sin. Having become a vassal of the sinful West, Ukraine must be saved and restored to holy Rus. And this notion that the Christian God would be behind violence is not a new thing in the world at all. So, so, so many people have died in so-called holy wars. But doesn't it seem like hearing the story of Jesus over and over and over again by now might have led at least the church down a different path? But we hear the same sort of rhetoric in this country from a large segment of the Christian church, enamored of a tough leader who will restore morality and Christian values. And it's surely not just them. Powerful leaders present themselves as defenders of the values of the church, and swimming in their power, they hurt people. Women, children, teenagers, liberals, conservatives, it happens over and over and over again with powerful people. I'd like to see what happens if we get behind the guy on the donkey. Or I don't know, see what happens if we go down the path he's laid, even if we're a little circumspect about shouting his name. One commentator I read about so it talked about how when you think about the details of this story, choosing a donkey that had never been written could be really problematic because like horses, the first time a donkey's ridden, it will almost inevitably not be a smooth ride. 
Donkeys are known to refuse to move when they're afraid. So I looked up a donkey trainer on the internet who said you can't push and bully a donkey into obedience. But if they trust you, they'll do almost anything for you. The key is mutual respect. If your donkey knows you love it and can, can depend on you to be kind, it will trust you and it will walk the path that you direct it toward. I can believe that Jesus might have a way with all God's creatures. A tenderness, a trustworthiness. The going may be slow or sporadic, but the key is love. And I think people do trod that path all over the place. But we probably don't see it so much by looking at the powerful. I for one wish I'd just quit looking there and hoping for something different. But like I found this when I got past the headlines, the story about these indigenous people from Brazil who take this long trek along this muddy path, trudge by foot across a muggy plain to collect seeds. And the elder tells the entourage, listen to me carefully. The love we feel for the plants and seeds make us walk under the scorching sun without complaining. It's laborious, slow work. They pick fruits by hand from these waterlogged streams, but they're slowly, carefully collecting the seeds that will reforest the land that has been cleared for industrial agriculture. They're working to save the Brazilian forest seed by seed. They're healing the sick. They're restoring the broken albeit in a way that doesn't read power, muscle, strength, authority. Or I don't know what about the path the mushrooms take, these incredibly complex interwoven paths of fungi beneath our feet, creating connective tissue between everything with the potential to clean oil spills, restore the ecosystem, cure disease. Or the meals you make, the meal trains, a very slow and not very flashy power. Or when you long to scapegoat the heck out of something or someone, but you choose to attempt empathy, however shaky and broken. I believe we can trust in the way of Jesus, even when it's not at all easy to see. We praise you.
You've been listening to the House of Mercy podcast. You can experience all this live every Sunday at 5. Check out www.houseofmercy.org for all the details. House of Mercy is a church in St. Paul. You should come. It's not that bad. I'm